Katie and I were talking last night, I came across a story, actually this week, a story I'd never heard before, um, at least the way I had read it. There was a man named George who was born in 1895 in Baltimore, in a particularly rough point in, in history. He was one of eight children in his family, but only two of those children survived beyond infancy. So George, being one of the kids, and a sister survived. Uh, the other six passed away as babies. But growing up there in Baltimore as a little child was not all that great. George's father opened a bar and that had an apartment above it, and that's where George and his family lived, on the second floor of that bar. But George's parents were so focused on the business that they frequently left George to his own devices, which unfortunately were not very good uh, at all. At age six and seven, George was prone to running the streets of Baltimore, sneaking into the bar and grabbing alcohol and running out and drinking it with his friends at six and seven. Uh, George was caught doing this very frequently. His parents didn't take the time to care for him, so they took him and put him in an orphanage when he was seven. He almost was never visited by them, having been put in this orphanage. He was basically abandoned by them to live in this orphanage. And uh, he was allowed to leave the orphanage once when he was 12, when his mother passed away. He was allowed to go to her funeral, but as soon as it was over, he had to go back to the orphanage. George was, we believe, to be divinely placed, though, because this orphanage was run by some Christians. Particularly one was the orphanage, uh, the disciplinarian of the orphanage. He saw something special in George and showed him something he had not received his entire life up to that point. This disciplinarian showed George both love and kindness, which is ironic considering uh, George had trouble with authority and with discipline, but it was the disciplinarian who showed this to him. This man's name was Matthias. He was a former baseball player, and he began to teach the boys there in the orphanage how to play baseball, take them out in the yard. They had this little lot nearby, and they would play ball, and it would keep them occupied, help them have fun, teach them teamwork, uh, how to, to work together, uh, how to have good sportsmanship, treat others with respect. Uh, George, from age seven on up, uh, continued to play baseball there at the orphanage under the instruction and tutelage of Matthias. When he was 19, there's varying reports, when he was 19, uh, the owner of a local minor league team, at the time the Baltimore Orioles, came to watch a scrimmage there because he knew somebody who, who invited him to the game. And he saw George play, and he, at, at George being 19, signed George to a contract to come and play for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, but baseball then isn't like baseball now, professional at least, and it was desperately struggling financially, not just the Baltimore Orioles, but all of the teams. To try to alleviate some of the financial strain, the owner of the Orioles 
uh, tried to take some of his players' contracts and sell them to other teams, George being one of those contracts. But none of the other teams could afford George's contract. It wasn't very much. But they were all going through the same financial issues on the verge of bankruptcy, and nobody could buy any of the contracts until this one guy came along. The owner of the Boston Red Sox offered a little pittance for George's contract. Well, the owner of the Orioles was in uh, such desperate need that he accepted the offer, sent George on uh, to Boston to play for the Red Sox, and at that point, George forever changed the game of baseball. Because George began to do something that nobody had done before. George began to hit home run after home run after home run. Before George, it was just a short game. People hit, nobody really hit home runs. It was, uh, if you can imagine, even slower than it is today. Uh, But George began to show things that nobody thought possible. In addition to hitting these home runs, uh, George was a pitcher. But he got so frustrated at pitching because you couldn't play every day. And so he asked to not just pitch, but on days he wasn't pitching to play another position. So the manager put him in the outfield. So some days he would pitch, some days he'd play in the outfield, just so he could play more. Well, people began to come see more and more baseball games. Not because it got a whole lot more exciting, but because George was exciting to watch. So whenever the Boston Red Sox were playing another team, those games would sell out because everybody wanted to come see him play. Everybody wanted to come see what he would do, how many home runs he would hit, how exciting it would be, how passionate George would be playing when nobody else demonstrated the same thing that he did. And George then saved baseball, but he also did something unique in creating baseball in in being the national pastime it is today. George is better known by his nickname, which I'm sure some of you picked up on now. His nickname is Babe Ruth. And George, Babe Ruth is a name we all know, whether we like baseball or not. All because of some kind Christian man poured into him with love in a way that his family would not. His family tossed him aside, but somebody else scooped him up. You know, people throw people away all the time. You may have thought that life was going to play out a certain way, but then... Someone threw a wrench in the plan, and now you, you feel rejected, or you feel abandoned, or you feel alone. Maybe you feel sort of aimless or lost. Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So if you're in the middle of feeling that kind of way, Jesus came for you. He said that's his whole purpose in coming. Jesus came. So you may have been abandoned. But there's good news, Jesus is coming for you. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. It's on page 840 if you want to use a Bible on the pew rack. Mark chapter 5. Let me give you a little background on what's going on here. Jesus has been going around and teaching. He's been healing some people. He was mainly doing this in, in a Jewish part of the region, of the area. And people would come out in droves as Jesus would heal, as Jesus would teach. Um, They considered him to be uh, possibly a prophet, um, and they wanted to hear. Some even believed he was the Messiah, the chosen one. 
Uh, and so they wanted to come and see that and experience that. Well, Jesus was teaching on this one side of the, a lake, and uh, it got to be evening time. He dismissed everybody. Jesus and his disciples then get in a boat, and a lot of his, the other hangers-on, people who were you know, just kind of there to, to, to witness Jesus, also get in their boats. And so you've got Jesus and all these other boats, and they're crossing this lake at nighttime. And in the middle of that moment, a storm kicks up while they're on the water. Jesus in the boat, his disciples in the boat. Jesus has curled up in the front of the boat, and he falls asleep. Well, the storm kicks up, and it's rocking all these boats. It's throwing water everywhere. Waves are going nuts. Uh, it's such an intense storm that even some of Jesus' disciples who grew up on the water, who were fishermen, uh, like uh, Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, they grew up, they, 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 that's all they knew was being on the water. This storm was so intense, it even scared them. And so they all began to, you know, blow their tops, lose a gasket, and they end up waking Jesus up, and they say, do you not care that we're going to die? Well, Jesus gets up, and he rebukes the storm, and he calms it, and instantly the storm stops, still the middle of the night. And then he looks at his disciples, and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? As though to say to him, you guys have seen so much. Like, you've seen me heal these people, blind people are seeing, uh, uh, deaf people are receiving their, uh, uh, the ability to hear, uh, raising people from the dead. You're seeing all of this. Have you no faith that you're going to be taken care of in the middle of the storm? And it says the disciples uh, were filled with great fear. Because even though they've seen what they've seen, now to see someone, Jesus, control nature that way, they say, who is this man, really, that he can do this? Well, then they get their boat lands on the other side of the lake. It's still the middle of the night. The boat lands on the other side of the lake. And why this is important is because they had left the Jewish section of the country, and they went to a Gentile section of the country, where you know, Jews and Gentiles didn't associate. They, they hated each other's guts. Massive racial, racial prejudice. And they go to this section of the country, the region, on purpose. And they land over there in the middle of the night. And that's where we come in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, now, this was a city that was nearby, a few miles away, some miles away. Uh, and they called the whole region there the country of the Gerasenes. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met, out of, met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now you've got to picture the scene, okay? They had been in the boat. Disciples were scared out of their minds. They land in Gentile country, so they're already on edge. It's the middle of the night, and here comes a crazy man running out of a graveyard at him. Anybody going to be a little scared? A little nervous? Maybe push one of the slower guys in front of you kind of a situation? Uh, well, that's what's going on here. That, that, that's the way it's presented. It's the middle of the night. They land on the Gentile country, and out of the graveyard comes running this man. Verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. 
No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this man had been causing a disturbance, most likely in their city, in their town. And so they take this guy and they try to restrain him and they try to control him and they put him way out, away from where they are. Some even believe this is up to you know, 30, 40 miles away from the city. They move him way away from where they are because they don't want anything to do with him. They don't want him anywhere near them. They drive him away from everybody. Nobody wants him. And he's out there. And even out there, he's, they, they, they try to put him in chains. He breaks the chains. Uh, uh, he cuts himself. Uh, he's a menace to society, they believe. And so nobody wants anything to do with him. And then Jesus pulls up in a boat at this man's front door. No accident. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He ran and fell down before him. You see, people had tried to hide this man. People had tried to forget about this man. But in hiding this man, Jesus went, made a beeline across the lake right to where he was. As hard as it is to guide a boat in a straight line when you're rowing with guys of different strength on different sides of the boat, it's incredibly hard to drive a boat in a straight line in the middle of a storm. Jesus did. Jesus went through the storm to get to this spot, pulls up at this man's front door. This man, everyone had been trying to hide, Jesus found him. Jesus went through this storm with his guys, with his disciples, to get to this man. Because that's something Jesus does. Jesus will always rescue the castaways. When the castaways want to be found, Jesus will rescue them. Jesus will come to where they are and rescue them. Jesus came to this man on purpose. The disciples undoubtedly would have not just avoided the whole Gentile area, they would have avoided wherever this man was. They, as Jews, they would have avoided the, the graveyard. They would have said, absolutely no way we're going by the graveyard because that would make us unclean if we step foot in the graveyard. But then this man comes running out of the graveyard and not only they're going to find out he's demon-possessed, but if they touch a demon-possessed man, they're unclean. But a man coming out of the graveyard, he's unclean. And if he touches us, he makes us unclean. They want, they want nothing to do with the man. Not only does society want nothing to do with the man, Jesus' own disciples would inevitably also want nothing to do with him. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, this is the, this is the man speaking, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus started saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And the man cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? This is important. There's recognition in who Jesus is. Not necessarily at the moment by the man, but by the demons within the man. They recognize who Jesus is. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Jesus is son of the most high God. Jesus has absolute authority. And here this demon drives this man to kneel down before Jesus, not out of worship, but out of honor. I mean, who Jesus is, uh, that he has to do this. He says, don't torment me. Look at verse 
9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. I want you to notice too, it's going to happen throughout when the man speaks in the voice of the demon. Uh, He'll speak interchangeably with uh, a singular pronoun and plural verbs, and it'll go back and forth because uh, it's both, we believe, the spokesman of the demons, and they're speaking on behalf of all of them. But when he says, my name is Legion, uh, that was a a Roman term. It was a Roman regiment of military, typically 4,000 to 6,000 troops, and something along the lines of 120 horsemen. Not saying that there's like 6,000 demons in the man, maybe, but I mean, just, just as symbolism that there's an army of demons within the man. That's how he's able to break the chains and whatnots that they talked about earlier. He said, there's so many of us in here. We are a legion. But it also shows the power of Jesus that a legion of demons have to come and bow down before him because they've got no power over him. So my name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, look at verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Now, we're going to get into a very tricky part here. Um, Let's just, again, try to visualize it. you got Jesus. They're there. They pull up on this beach area. you got the graveyard. Man runs out of the thing. And there's a herd of pigs just over the way um, that represent, you know, massive financial opportunity for the owners of the pigs. Most likely, the way it worked back then is, is we're going to find out the size of this herd in a minute. Uh, when it was a large herd like this, uh, and they did this with sheep as well, uh, it was usually uh, several owners had, had pooled their sheep or, sheep, uh, or uh, uh, pigs together uh, and they would move them together to various areas instead of there being like five different, uh, like in this case, uh, pig herds, they would put them all in one big thing and pool their resources uh, to make it easier on the shepherds to move them together like this instead of having uh, competing groups. So you got this group of pigs, and the demons begged Jesus. Notice that word, verse 12. They begged him. So what does Jesus do, verse 13? He gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. So the demons beg Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives the demons permission. Jesus gives them permission. Still the middle of the night. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. So here's what's going on. You got the herdsmen, the, the pig shepherds. Um, the pigs rush off into the sea, and so they, the pig shepherds, just jump up and run to the city, miles and miles away. And as they're going to the city, everybody they meet on the path, they tell about what happened. The guy down there cast demons out, our pigs ran into the water, all the pigs are dead. And so they're running down the road telling everybody this. They arrive at the city and they tell everybody in town this. Then they get to the owners of the pigs and they tell the owners of the pigs what had happened. And the owners, you know, you feel that that sinking feeling in your gut when this massive loss of financial opportunity uh, hits. Uh, And so they start to make their way down there to the beach. 
Now, we don't know what goes on in the journey to the, to the, to the beach uh, in this period of time that's transpired of them running the miles to the city and then walking the miles back to the beach. Uh, if I am the pig owners, I'm thinking of what I'm going to say to this man who cost me this financial ruin. Like I'm going through this conversation in my head, and this is gonna, I'm going to tell him this, and this is what's going to happen, and he's going to give me the money back, and, 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 and he, he's got to make up for all those pigs he killed. And so they're making their way down there, having conversations among themselves, probably getting themselves riled up as they make their way down to the beach. Verse 15, and they came to Jesus. Now, at this point, it's probably daytime. Remember, it was nighttime. Now it's probably daytime because of the time it would take to travel back and forth. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So they get down there ready to tell Jesus off, and, and they see the man that they've tried to control. They see the man that they cast out of the society. They see the man that they did not want, that they could not control, under control. Not by Jesus, he's under control. He, he's no longer possessed by the demons. And now all of a sudden they begin to realize something. This man didn't just kill our pigs. This man has power over all of those demons. So this is something bigger than just financial ruin. And so now they're afraid of the spiritual power of Jesus. And so this fear overtakes them. And so what do they do? Verse well, 16, they show up. Uh, those who had seen uh, it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to what? Beg Jesus to depart from the region. So we had the demons begging. Jesus gave them permission. Now we've got these unbelievers coming down here, and they begin to beg Jesus, you've got to leave. You've got to leave. Because of the fear they've got, they begin to beg Jesus to leave. Honestly, it, of all the passages in Scripture, this is one of the saddest. Begging, they've got the answer. They've got the Son of God there in front of them. And because they're scared, they beg him to get out of where they are. They want nothing to do with him because of their fear that, that something may be different than what they anticipated. So they beg Jesus to depart from their region. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat. So Jesus gives them permission as well. They beg him to leave, and so he does what they beg him to do. He gets in the boat. Jesus doesn't put up a fight. Jesus doesn't say, you guys are wrong. I'm the son of God. You guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm here to save you. You want me to leave? Well, then you're on your own devices. Everything's going to get messed up in your life because you're asking me to leave. No, Jesus, they beg him to leave. He just goes, and he gets in the boat to leave. The demons begged. He gave them permission. The unbelievers begged. He gave them permission. But now look at what happens as he gets in the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them. Now, what's interesting, in the original language in Greek, a lot of words mean a lot of different things. But every time some, the word begged is used in this section, it's the same exact word. Like there's no variation in the word. It's all the same. So you got the demons begging, you got the unbelievers begging, and now you got this man begging. This man who's been healed, this man who's had the demons come out, this man who is a now a follower, a believer in Jesus, he begs Jesus, just let me go with you, let me be with you. I want to be one of your disciples, Jesus. So does Jesus give him permission? Verse 19, and he did not permit him. Jesus said no. 
The man said, I just want to be with you, Jesus. Jesus said, no, no. But I saw you give the demons permission. I saw you give the unbelievers permission, Jesus. Jesus said, no, I'm not giving you permission because there's something else. He said, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis is a grouping of 10 cities, 10 Gentile cities in this one area. So it's, it's not just that that's one city. It is 10 whole cities. Jesus said, I want you to go home and tell your family and friends. So what does the man do? He goes not just to his family and friends. He goes to all 10 cities in the area and tells them to proclaim in them how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone in each of those 10 cities marvels at what Jesus did for this man. Marvels at what Jesus did for him. So demons got permission. Unbelievers got permission. But this man didn't receive permission. You know, permission doesn't necessarily mean favor. Permission doesn't necessarily mean endorsement. A follower of Jesus should desire something greater than simply permission. Because, like we said, the demons and the people had permission. But the man had something different. The man didn't have permission. He had a commission. He was told by Jesus to go and do something. He was told to go tell everybody. He was told to go tell them how much the Lord had done for him, how much mercy God had had on him. Because a commission is a blessing for the willing. A commission is a blessing. You might say, I'm begging Jesus for something. But Jesus said, no, Jesus didn't give me permission. Well, permission isn't always what we think it is. Permission isn't always what we need. Permission isn't what always will bring the greatest glory to God. Sometimes mere permission is a curse for the defiant, like the demons or the people. They got permission, but they didn't receive a commission. This man received a commission, and it didn't just change his life. It changed, undoubtedly, the the eternal destination of some of his hearers in those ten cities. Here comes this man, and he tells them, I was demon-possessed. I had a whole legion in me. I was ripping stuff apart. This whole town cast me out because nobody wanted anything to do with me. They couldn't stand me. They abandoned me. They kicked me out. And then Jesus came, and he healed me. Jesus gave me something nobody else did. He gave me mercy. He gave me love. Jesus found me when I needed to be found. And that's the thing about being found. Once you have been found, you're not done. That's not the end of life. It's like when you play hide and seek. Once you're found, the game's over. That's not the way it works with Jesus. Once you're found, you're not done. This man has been found, so he's he's received this commission. You've been found, now go and find other people. You've been found, go and find other people. Because once you've been found, that's when the work really begins. Because the found, go find. If you have been found by Jesus, it's your job then, as instructed by Jesus, to go and find. Like I said a minute ago, Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then in uh, John chapter 21, Jesus said, Just as I have been sent, I'm sending you. So the commission he received to come and seek and save the lost, he gave to us to seek and save the lost. He says, I found you. Now you go find. Now it's your job to do the finding. It's your job to go out and find. It's like uh, uh, yesterday, a couple of my kids were playing hide and seek in the house. 
pretty quick game. There's not a whole lot of places to hide. But one of them was supposed to be the seeker and got distracted by something on the TV and sat down in the living room while the other one's still hiding. You know, sometimes we do that. When we're supposed to be going and finding, we get distracted by something going on in the world and we sit down and we stop finding. And we leave people to their own devices out there just waiting to be found because we have the power to find. The found go find. We know that Jesus rescues the castaways like us and then he sends the castaways back out fully supplied to find more just like them. To find more just like you. Who better to find people like you than you? You've been found, go find. But you have to come to the realization first that Jesus found you. You have to understand he came to find you. Other people will say all kinds of mess to try to distract you, to try to pull you away from what Jesus has for you. And they'll try to, try to keep you ground down and, and, and bound up like the man in the graveyard. All the while, Jesus has pulled up to your front door to find you. Sometimes we need the biggest, blaringest, lit up neon sign right in front of us of Jesus giving us direction. But at the same time, he's already given us direction. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's already told us what to do. He's already told us to go find. He's already told us to get out there. And you may say, hey, preacher man, you don't know my past. Like, you don't, we're in a small town. Like, everybody knows everybody's business. And if they don't know your business, then they make up business about you. They just know all kinds of stuff. Well, I want you to take a minute... And think about the Apostle Paul. When Jesus came and found Paul, Paul was going to a city to try to arrest and kill people for being Christians. Jesus found him. Jesus showed up in the middle of the road and said, uh, at the time he was going by Saul because he was in a uh, Jewish community and that was his Hebrew name. Uh, And he said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you going after my people? And Saul went and he went and he prayed and fasted for three days, speaking with God. And during that three-day period, Jesus went to another man who lived in the town that Paul was coming to prosecute or persecute and told him, I want you to go and share the gospel with him. So this other man went over, shared the gospel. Uh, uh, Saul, Paul got saved. And then what did he do immediately? He began to go out and preach the gospel. You think Christians in that town... Damascus were nervous. This man who's known for killing Christians, who's known for arresting Christians, kicking in the front door, ripping them out when when they're having their dinner, leaving the kids by themselves because he's taking Christians to jail. Think they're nervous that this guy's out there now preaching about Jesus? But did he think about that? Did he worry about that in the moment? No, because for him, he's been found. Now he's got to go find people with everything he's got. Everywhere he goes, he's got to go find people. No matter what that looks like, no matter how that, that comes across, he's got to go find people. That rubbed people the wrong way. People tried to kill him every step of the way. He'd get to a new town, share the gospel, they'd put a hit out on him because people from the last town would come to this town trying to get him. One town, they end up stoning him to death. Drag him outside the town, they stone him to death. They get done stoning him to death, they go back into town. What happens to Paul? He gets up out of the pile of rocks and walks right back into the town with the people who just stoned him to death. Tells them about Jesus and leaves. He never stops. I mentioned it earlier in the service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says everything is about the gospel. 
If I'm going to Jews, I'm going to act like Jews so they can hear the gospel. If I'm going to Gentiles, I'm going to act like Gentiles because I want them to hear the gospel. I'm not going to sin, but I'm going to act like them so they can hear me, what I'm saying to them. Because it's all about the gospel. If I get arrested, fine. That means i got to tell the guards about Jesus. He says, wherever I'm going, it's all about the gospel. He says, because Jesus found me. He says, I was lost, and he found me. And I know what it's like to be found. And there's so many people wandering around out there who have not yet been found. They're trying to be found in all this other stuff that won't find them. All this other stuff that ultimately just gets them more lost. He says, I've got a way for they can, they can be found. And he goes out there and he starts finding people left, right, and center. And honestly, we're here today because of that. We're here today because he starts ministering to Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish. And I don't know every one of you, but I'd wager 90 some odd percent of you are Gentiles in this room. You're sitting here because of Paul, along with generations of Christians that came after him. The found go find. I want you to put in your mind's eye, if you're a Christian in the room, put in your mind's eye, who found you? Who shared the gospel with you? Who found you? For me, it was my parents. I can remember. My dad was a music minister. Sunday morning, before church one Sunday, sitting in his office, praying that Jesus would save me. I can remember each one of my kids praying at different points throughout their journey. Because that's what the find do, the, find go, uh, the found go find. And so there's two questions this morning. First, are you feeling abandoned or cast away or rejected or alone? Do you, you need to be found today? It's not by accident that you're here. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, he brought you here. He orchestrated your schedule to get you here to hear the gospel so you can be found because he cares about you that much. He wants you to be found. He doesn't want you wandering around lost and aimless in this world. He wants you to be found and know eternal life in heaven. So all you have to do is believe in Jesus, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. He rose from the dead. So you can live after you die, and you're saved forever. You can't lose your salvation. You can't do something tomorrow that says, hey, I'm not saved anymore. Because if you could, then you're more powerful than Jesus, and you're not. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved for all time. Nothing can undo that. Nothing can undo that. And other people may look and say, well, I've looked at the life of this person. They believe when they were little, and they walk off, and they're doing all this mess. Well, that person's not your judge. Jesus is. We all sin. We all mess up. We all stumble and fall. Some for a moment, some for seasons. But if you believe in Jesus, you're saved for all time. Nobody can undo that. Even if the enemy might whisper things in the back of your mind, you're saved forever. So will you believe in Jesus today? Will you be found today? The other question, if you have already allowed Jesus to find you, who will you find? Who will you find? Who has Jesus given you to find? Who has he put in your way to find? There's a movie came out a number of years ago. It's about this guy, um, 
he, he abandons, he kind of embraces cowardice and doesn't want to go to war. He's, he's scared. It's his duty. All his friends go to war. Uh, but then his friends go to war, and um, uh, there's this massive battle, and uh, he hears about his friends losing. And so he, at that moment, discovers his courage. And he, by himself, goes to this very volatile part of the world to find his friends. And he's in the middle of all these battles. He ends up getting captured and sold into slavery. And in, the, in slavery, he meets this guy who helps him, rescues him, gets him out of slavery, and sends him on his way. And there's this phenomenal scene in the movie. And the guy's yelling at him, the guy who, who left and went there. And he's yelling at this other guy who saved him out of slavery. Why did you help me? Why? And he said, God put you in my way. I had to help you. Who did God put in your way to find? You know, every single one of us is uniquely designed by God with our personality, with our characteristics, with spiritual gifts, for specific reasons, for a specific purpose. He gave you the family you have for a reason. The friends in your circle, the people you have influence over, you, ha you can do something nobody else can do in their lives. You say, man, I don't know. I can't do a whole lot. Like, I, I can't do this, that, or the other thing. They, you have been uniquely designed to reach people I can't, to reach people no one else in this room can. Who did Jesus give you to find? If you've been found by Jesus, he's given you people to find. Who are you going to go find? Who are you going to bring to him? Who are you going to share the gospel with? The found go find. So whether you need to come and be found by Jesus today or you need to go and find, we all have something to do before we walk out of those doors this morning.